Happy Easter to everybody. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we're going to be this evening. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, um, how many of you, this is your first time here. You've never been to St. Hill Church before. A couple of you. Can we just give it up for those who are new? We're so happy that you guys are here. Um, we are a new church plant. This is our first Easter ever, and so we're just like over the moon excited about uh, getting to celebrate some of these historic church calendar celebrations with you, and this certainly being one of them. So 1 Corinthians 15 is where we will be. I need to turn there too, otherwise you guys are going to get ahead of me. Sword drill. Does anybody remember those? Sword drill? Yeah, all right. Emotional scars. <laughs> I still sing like the Awana, like Bible memory song whenever I need to find a book in the Bible. So it, it did work. Um, now, I'm not sure, uh, or I am sure that many of you remember where you were when you heard the news about Notre Dame burning. Uh, you know exactly where you were for me. It was like one of those sort of like 9-11-esque moments. Um, and I'm not sure how it really hit you, uh, how um, you really were you know, affected by it, what the emotions were, um, but it hit me really hard. I'm not really sure why. In a, in a moment, I just was like, whoa, what is, is going on? I can't believe that that icon of Christendom is burning down. My wife and I uh, were just there this past summer. We had completely fallen in love with the art, the building itself, um, just really, honestly, getting a bigger glimpse of our shared Christian heritage. And so on Monday, when it was burning, I was just watching the footage, just thinking, oh my gosh, there is nothing that can be done. There's nothing that can be done. I'm just sitting here on CNN watching Christian history burn. Rich Lowry over at the National Review, he said this about Notre Dame. It was the work of generations completed across three centuries. It arose at the original site of a pagan temple. Thousands of tons of stone had to be transported from outside Paris, one ox cart or barge at a time. To achieve its soaring height and hold up its ceiling and walls, it relied on the architectural innovations of the rib vault and the flying buttress. It has been the site of countless processions and services to petition and to thank God on behalf of the French nation. It was where illustrious marriages and funerals occurred where Napoleon crowned himself emperor, where Charles de Gaulle attended a mass to celebrate the liberation of Paris in 1944 while rifle fire echoed outside. And you just watched it burn. Dust to dust, right? Um, Parisians in the photo, you can tell, lined up on the bridges over the River Seine just watching. As they're like, I can't do anything. And so they began to sing. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where something is gone forever and there's nothing that you can do about it? Maybe even more importantly than a cathedral, have you ever lost someone to death? A family member, somebody that you loved, and you wonder that next day you think to yourself, how can the world continue to rotate? How can the sun continue to shine? Don't the birds know what's happened in my life? Maybe you resonate with this, but I just have come to this belief over time that death is the most unnatural of the natural occurrences in our world, and we seem to know this deep down inside. Whether it's getting the phone call from the doctor with the bad news, and you're just like, oh my gosh, this changes everything. 
Or, or maybe it's over the summer and you're just looking at the images of fire sweeping through towns in California and you're just like, wow, really? Maybe it's the car accident. You get the phone call and it's like somebody that you know has been in a horrible car accident. Or it's the sudden illness that comes and just it radically changes your lifestyle. All of these different moments, they, they seem to rock us at the core and remind us of our imminence. And in the midst of it, we still long for the eternal. There's these niceties that we throw around like, oh, well, they're in heaven, don't worry. And I think for a lot of people, they're like, but really, are you sure? Let's read, it says this in verse one. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Skip over to verse 20, it says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I want to put forth to you this evening that the church that Jesus longs for understands that his resurrection means their resurrection. His resurrection means your resurrection. Now, the structure of this passage is super fascinating. In verse 3, Paul is reciting the earliest known creed claiming the resurrection of Jesus. He says that he received this creed, and now he's passing this creed down. Now, um, biblical scholars uh, point to the fact that Paul visited Jerusalem in the mid-30s A.D., it was then they believed that this creed was being passed around between followers of Jesus, very, very early followers of Jesus and amongst the apostles. Um, th this is what Paul means when he says that he received something and that now he's giving it away in verse 3. Now, think about this for a minute. What this means, that this creed was going around in the mid-30s AD, just a few years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, what it means is that this creed was not created during a time period where the people who loved Jesus or the people who hated Jesus would have been dead and gone. But they would have been around to either discount the story of the resurrection or to support it, right? If this creed had been going around in the mid-30s and Jesus hasn't, hadn't been resurrected, there would have been groups of people that would have been like, no, I know where his tomb is. It's right there. He's inside there. But this creed was incredibly early. 
And Paul says this, I receive this creed and they support it. Paul's whole point in reciting the creed in this letter to the Corinthian church is to remind them of the good news. I want to remind you of the gospel. Look down at verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And then he begins to talk about the resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection is the key to the gospel. Without resurrection, there's no good news. And so what I want to do with you all tonight is I want to remind you of what the gospel is. That his resurrection means your resurrection in every part of your life. Now maybe you're sitting here and you're going, well, what is the good news? What is the gospel exactly? Well, three pieces of good news because of the resurrection for all of you note takers. Write these things down. The first is this. Sin is gone. Look down at your Bibles, verse three. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Uh, philosopher Cornelius Plantinga, he said this in his book, not the, way, the way it's not supposed to be. He said this, sin is not only breaking of the law, but breaking the covenant with one's savior. Sin is the smearing of a relationship, the grieving of one's partner. Sin is the vandalizing of God's shalom. I love that phrase. It's just been stuck in my head ever since I read that. See, God created a good world, and sin is like vandalism on the overall functioning and well-being of the world. It's a big deal. And what Paul says is that the cross and resurrection dealt with that sin. I'll pause for a second. How exactly did that happen? Well, imagine this. Imagine that I go and I buy a new car. Let's say I came into a, a nice sum of money and I bought a Maserati. I know you want that. That would be great. Uh, so I get a Maserati, and I have my buddy come over to check it out. I'm like, oh, you got to check this out. I, I never thought I would be driving a car like this. It's amazing. you got to take it for a test drive. And he's like, I can't wait. So he gets in the car, and I say to him, okay, look, the street in front of our house is 25 only, no faster than 25. I know the car just looks fast, but when you get in it, you got to go 25. If you go over the speed limit, you're going to totally wreck this car. He's like, dude, I know what I'm doing. Just chill. So I nervously hand him the key. He takes it for a spin around the block. And sure enough, he comes down my street 85 miles per hour and just completely wrecks it on the corner into a post. Ouch. Now, think about this for a second. There's a debt that has just been incurred, is there not? The debt is the price of the car. And there's a couple of different options of what could happen in this moment. Either I say to him, I told you, don't go over 25 miles per hour. You owe me 90 grand. And he's like, I, but, I, but. I'm like, no, 90 grand, that's it. You, there's a debt and you will pay it. Or let's say that I say, oh, you know what, man? I'm gonna bring this before the Lord. I'm going to pray. I don't want to see you for a month. I'm going to just let it go. And the debt is this. I don't have a car. I don't have the awesome Maserati anymore. Instead, I'm, I'm stuck without it. Or the debt could be paid like this. You know what? You made a mistake. I told you not to do it. 
but don't worry, I'll cover it. See, here's the reality, is that all wrongdoing in life incurs a debt. Because God created a good world that he intended to function a certain way, when we don't live into the function that he prescribed for us, it's like we're, it's almost like a fine watch. Tim Keller uses this example. He says, creation is almost like this fine watch that has all of these perfect, beautiful gears inside of it. And essentially what happened was we were one of those gears inside the watch and we said, we don't want to spin like this. We jumped out of our gear shaft and we ended, ended up clunking around and messing all of the gears up. And the watch just barely functions any longer. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus paid the cost. We gotta think about this again, church. Jesus paid the cost. He wiped clean the stain that our vandalism of God's shalom had caused. He fixed the watch. He paid for the car. Here's what we learn in Paul's letter to the Colossians. This is just beautiful stuff right here. Next slide. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's just a first century dig right there, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. What does that mean? Well, it it means this. Jesus became sin so that you could become his righteousness. Jesus became sin so that God could nail it to the cross and get rid of it. Now, what does this mean for you? Well, sin what, it, sin, what it causes you to do is it causes you to question God's goodness and then to act on that belief. I don't know if God is actually good. I'm going to do this now. I don't know if God is actually good. I'm going to bring this future blessing into the present. But sin is also addictive. It's like this, once you start sinning, it's like I got to keep on sinning to, to either cover up that sin or because I just can't stop. It's just enticing me. In Genesis chapter 4, God, he describes sin as crouching at Cain's door, ready to devour him. And, And what is being said here in this passage is that this force of sin has been stripped of its power, and we are now able to choose to live free of sin. You don't have to sin anymore. I was hanging out with a buddy of mine this week, and he's like, he's like, hey, so in my seminary class, your name got brought up, and, uh, and people were saying that you don't believe that, that Christians, you believe that Christians can live sinless. And I'm like, bro, it's not me, it's John. First John chapter three, if anybody sins, not when you sin, if you sin. Take it up with John, don't take it up with me. You are free from sin. The debt and the power of it is gone. Second piece of good news, we've been purchased. We've been bought. Look down at your Bibles, verse 22, it says this. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Everybody say that, belong. Belong to him. It sounds nice. You belong to God, you get resurrected. But how do we belong to him? How does that happen? We get redeemed. We get redeemed. I've shared this before with you guys. I I just love the language of redemption because it always takes me back to working at Bullwinkle's Family Fun Center. This Bullwinkle's Family Fun Center, the year, wow, what was that? 2007. 
17 years old, hanging out at the go-kart track. And you know what? You guys have all probably experienced this. You go to a place like that, you're playing all the games, and you're just unloading on tickets. You're getting you're like, I can't. Kids see tickets, they don't even know what they mean, and they go bonkers for the tickets. Like, I need more tickets. And so you take your tickets in your huge pile, you take them to the redemption counter, and you know what you get to do? You get to redeem prizes because your tickets have weight. And the weight is they can pay the cost in order to take different prizes from behind the counter. And this is the language of redemption. God is like, okay, he's at the counter. He's like, I just made a huge payment on the cross, and I think I want those people. And the enemy who's like, because the guy who works at the counter is always just kind of a grouchy guy. The enemy working at the counter is like, no, 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 you don't want those people. And he's like, those are exactly who I want. And he's like, cashes in, gives the tickets, and he gets us. Jesus didn't just pay a debt and then leave us to ourselves. His payment of the debt transferred ownership of our lives. Your ownership has been transferred. See, we were once owned and ruled by the deceiver. There was a payment made with Jesus' blood that now means we belong to him, and now it is illegal for us to view ourselves outside of his blood. It's illegal to view yourself outside of his blood, yet many of us do this. Another car example for you. I like cars, as you can tell. Uh, let's say that I have a car that I sell on Craigslist. I sell the car on Craigslist, and a few months go by. I, I happen to even know what, who bought the car. The guy just lives across town. A few months go by, and I'm rummaging through some old stuff, and I come across one of the keys that belongs to that car. And I think to myself, oh, I remember windows rolled down, Florida Georgia line on the radio, driving that car up and down the hills. Like, yes, oh, FGL over here. And, I, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go take it for a spin. And I walk over to that, to that house, and I get in the car, and I, I just take it for a little while. Do you know what that's called? That's called theft. <laughs> Jesus purchased your past, and yet many of us are comfortable living out of our past rather than the reality that he purchased for us. And so we go back and we think, oh, I'm more comfortable living as a sinner rather than a saint. It feels kind of awkward calling myself a saint. And the New Testament's like, but that's what you are. The payment was that large. To view yourself outside of the blood of Jesus is to steal from God's future by claiming you still live behind the prize counter. The power of incorporation is this. When you belong to him, you get what he gets. That's what it means to be co-heirs. Resurrection is the symbol of belonging. When you look at somebody's life and you're like, man, they have a resurrection all over them. It's like they must, I know who they belong to. Third piece of good news is this. Christus Victor. Christus Victor. How many of you ever heard this term before, heard this phrase? Okay, this is, oh, this is so good. Uh, this is an ancient uh, theological term that basically purports this. Christ's death was actually his coronation. What looked like he was getting defeated? No, 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 no. He was actually dominating. Death has been defeated, and the demonic has lost its power because of the resurrection. Look down in your Bibles, verse 6. It says this. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Isn't that a fascinating paradigm? Some have fallen asleep. Well, don't you mean they just died? What do you mean fallen asleep? 
You see what he's doing is he's minimizing the sting of death because if there is sleeping, then there's waking. If there is sleeping, then there is waking. Now, how can he say that? Well, death is an enemy that was destroyed by Jesus' resurrection. Just like Adam was the first human to die and many followed after him, Jesus is the first to rise with many to follow after him. Continuing on in the same uh, passage in Colossians, it says this, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter, there it is. Okay, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Isn't that, a, that language is just like, whoa. And now he invites anyone who wants it to walk in that victorious lifestyle towards death and the demonic. I was talking about this with my wife this week, and she just had a great example. She's like, well, okay, it's almost like when a team just gets dominated. And I'm like, whoa, a team gets dominated? I'm like, you've been watching March Madness or something. I love this. And she says, you know, the last thing that a team who just got destroyed in a game wants to do is spend time around the other team. You'd never want to do that, especially if they're partying. They're like, we are the champions. Oh, yeah, they're popping champagne, hanging out. The last thing that you're going to do is hang around them, right? So how do you see the demonic push back in your life? You have a party with the Lord. <laughs> That's better than your response was. Um, could it be possible that you were intended to live in victory for your whole life because you belong to him? That his victory in every aspect was intended to become your victory in every single aspect. There's a group of Christians during the Reformation named the Moravians. They had this saying and they had this crest that is just awesome. There it is. The, our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. How's that? Our lamb has conquered, let us follow him. And they ended up turning the world upside down. If you're curious about them, get a book. It's just phenomenal people. Let's walk in the spectacle, triumphing over his enemies on the cross. Now, maybe you're sitting here this evening and you're like, you know, man, the pastels are nice, but you haven't engaged my redeemed imagination. I'm bored. I'm bored in church. Big surprise. Some specifics would be helpful. What does this actually look like? I hear you. I hear that in the room. You like that, Em? That's a good one. I know. I made that slide, and I thought, this is going to be good. Here's the typical Easter message. Someday you're going to die, but don't worry. Jesus has got you. And you're like, I dressed up to hear that again? I've heard it like 30 times. Now, clearly Paul thinks that that is true, and so do we. But I also think the resurrection is the power of the kingdom. The, without the resurrection, there's no engine in the kingdom. When Jesus came, he said this, the kingdom is at hand, meaning that the kingdom of God, the space where God's will is done, the space where darkness is pushed back, the space where people have purpose and relationship with their creator, where broken bodies are made whole, the place where heaven is, is at hand, meaning it's close. How many of you have ever gone to bed, you hop in bed, and you just think to yourself, I'm, get, I'm all warm, I'm not getting out of this bed until the morning, and then you just think, oh my gosh, I am, I am so thirsty, I'm like in the Sahara Desert. I need a glass of water. 
Now, unless you're my wife, you get out of your own bed and you go get your own water. But if you're my wife, then you're like, hey, can you go get me a glass of water? And I always say yes, it's true, you have to admit that. Um, but if you get in bed and you're like, oh, I am so thirsty, and you look over and you're like, oh, there's a glass of water. Guess what? The glass of water was at hand. Jesus comes and he says the kingdom is at hand, meaning it's within reach. Jesus didn't come just to get you into heaven. Someday he came to get heaven into you so that you would live in the overlap of heaven and earth. So that resurrection would touch whatever you touch right here and right now. Paul puts it in this language. I just love this in Philippians chapter three. But our citizenship is in heaven. <laughs> I don't know where your citizenship is. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, what does that mean? It means that you carry with you privileges that only citizens of heaven carry. I want you to kind of go there in your imagination with me. Here's a photo of the United States Embassy in uh, Haiti. There it is. Flag being flown. The rules of this embassy are different than the rules of Haiti. The land that this embassy sits on isn't Haiti. It's the United States land. Legally. That building isn't governed by the poverty of Haiti. It's governed by the wealth of the United States. The safety of that embassy is that it is a refuge for those who are citizens of the United States. Something goes wrong, go to the embassy. You lose your passport, go to the embassy. Somebody's after you, go to the embassy. Why? Because you have privileges and rights because of the country where you're from. This is the place where you work out the problems that you face in country while you're away from your home country. Are you getting the metaphor? See, our embassy is the embassy of resurrection. So I will live from and work from a place of triumph rather than defeat throughout all of my life because I'm a citizen of heaven. Because I'm a citizen of heaven, I'm not defined by the lack of this world. I'm defined by the surplus of my father. When you live in heaven, while, even while you're here on earth, in that overlap, it changes the way that you live relationally, physically, emotionally. It changes the way that you view people relationally because when you're experiencing forgiveness on a daily basis and connection with your creator on a daily basis, you begin to get hopeful for the people around you. You begin to dream about what resurrection could look like for them. And then you just start speaking it over them. You're like, I am so filled with resurrection. I am such a citizen of heaven that I am just imagining what it would be like if you were a citizen of heaven, if you had the resurrection in your life right now. It changes the way that we exist physically. Uh, death doesn't get the final word, and I think we've got that at this point, but also physical healing is a reminder of the truth of the resurrection. We have people getting healed at our church like every week, and what that, when that happens, it's not forever, death does come and resurrection will come after that, but what, what is happening in that moment is we are seeing a signpost pointing in a direction towards the kingdom of heaven, pointing in a direction towards a good father who cares about his children. We don't worship the healing. We don't worship signs and wonders. They're just signs pointing to the one who we do worship. 
if there's a new restaurant in town, and I say, oh my gosh, this restaurant is amazing, you have to go visit it. You wouldn't like get your friends together, get all dressed up, we're going to this restaurant, I can't wait. You wouldn't drive there just to see the sign and be like, oh, that is a great sign pointing at a great restaurant, but the sign, the sign, no, the sign's pointing to the meal. Anytime God breaks into our world and he does something supernatural, all it is is it's just a sign pointing right back to the good father who wants a relationship with his children. So we don't heal the sick because we long to see power. We heal the sick because it's what integrity does when confronted with sickness. I'm a citizen of heaven. To be integrous, I must pray for healing. Lastly, emotionally, I now live with a full emotional tank. My battle isn't against flesh and blood, but with the, the demonic, who would love nothing more than to take people down with them as they're being crushed by our king. I will not define my life by the lack around me. I'm a citizen of heaven. I have accesses to the resources of heaven that the rest of the world doesn't have. It changes the way you emotionally walk through life. This is really what I'm describing is just a kingdom lifestyle. This is a kingdom lifestyle. One of the many reasons why I believe in the resurrection story is that there aren't many other ways to explain the impact Christianity has had on the world. It's like, how do you explain that? A guy gets killed, and just somehow they take over. Like Rodney Stark has this great book on the history of Christianity in the first 300 years, how it exploded from like you know, 1% of the Roman Empire to all of the empire within just 300 years. Stunning stuff, unless the resurrection was true. Unless it was true. The resurrection of Jesus caused his followers to treat death like it was no big deal, to cast out the demonic and live with very little care for what tends to win points in this life. In a funny twist, their actions tended to produce more life in this world simply because they were living for the next. I want to end uh, this evening by just sharing a little story with you. You guys ready for story time with, uh, with Alex? I got this book here. It's called Rumors of Another World from uh, an author named Philip Yancey. Any Philip Yancey fans in the house? One. Okay, you're going to be a fans after this. Uh, I, I just kind of want to set the scene for you. Um, I think we have a couple slides with some photos on them. During World War II, there was this gentleman named Ernest Gordon. He was a British Army officer who was captured at sea by the Japanese. They sent him to work on the Burma Siam uh, railway line in Thailand. Just incredibly horrific work. And uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of what, what happened on this railway. It says this, the scene was straight out of Dante. Naked except for loincloths, the men worked under the broiling sun in 120 degree heat. Their bodies stung by insects, their bare feet cut and bruised by sharp stones. Death was commonplace. If a prisoner appeared to be lagging, a Japanese guard would beat him to death, bayonet him, bayonet him or decapitate him in full view of the other prisoners. 80,000 men ultimately died building the railway, 393 fatalities for every mile of track. For most of the war, the prison camp had been a laboratory of survival of the fittest. Every man for himself in the food line Prisoners fought over the few scraps of vegetables or grains of rice floating in the greasy broth. Recently, though, a change had come. One event in particular shook the prisoners. Japanese guards carefully counted the tools at the end of a day's work, and one day, the guard shouted that a shovel was missing. 
He walked up and down the ranks, demanding to know who had stolen it. When no one confessed, he screamed, all die, all die. He raised his rifle to fire at the first man in the line at that instant. An enlisted man stepped forward, stood at attention, and said, I did it. The guard fell on him in a fury, kicking and beating the prisoner, who despite the blows still managed to stand at attention. Enraged, the guard lifted his weapon high in the air and brought the rifle butt down on the soldier's skull. The man sank into a heap to the ground, but the guard continued kicking his motionless body. That evening, when tools were inventoried again, the work crew discovered a mistake had been made. No shovel was missing. One of the prisoners remembered the verse, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Attitudes in the camp began to shift. Gordon, he writes this, Death was still with us, no doubt about that but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing ourselves for, the sharp, the, for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and those that made for death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride were all anti-life. Love, heroism, Self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith, on the other hand, were the essence of life. A change began to happen in this camp. Uh, they be, each evening began to pray for those with the greatest in need, those who were the most sick. They began to lay hands on them and pray for them. This eventually, this care evolved into a jungle university. That's what they called it where whoever had expertise in a specific field would teach other men about that subject. Soon they had courses in Latin, history, philosophy, natural sciences, Greek, Russian, and Sanskrit. Prisoners with artistic inclinations salvaged bits of charcoal from cooking fires and pounded it into powder for painting classes. They began to treat their guards with kindness rather than contempt. This unofficial chaplain, Ernest Gordon, this man, when he was released from this prison camp, he actually became the chaplain of Princeton University. It's radically changed his life. Philip Yancey, he says this, the miracle on the River Kwai was no less than the creation of an alternative community, a tiny settlement of the kingdom of God taking root in the least likely soil. Perhaps this is what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to the kingdom of God. In the soil of the violent, disordered world, an alternative community may take root. It lives in hope of a day of liberation. Let me ask you this this evening. Are you really living? Or are you tossed back and forth by the waves of mortality and the world? When you visit Jerusalem, there are several different sites where people will claim Jesus was buried. They're like, take a tour here or take a tour there. Some of these locations are perhaps more likely than others, but nobody is 100% sure. And the reason for that is that the tomb of Jesus was lost by the early church. The location was never handed down. Why? Because it didn't mean anything. 
If Jesus was still in there, then it would have been venerated and certainly known about by the elite of the church, even if the early church wanted to spread this rumor of resurrection falsely. When a child dies, their room becomes somewhat of a shrine. But when a child is alive, that room is simply just like any other child's room. The significance comes when the child is no longer there, and that room becomes a link to the child in a spiritual sort of way. Why did the early church not do this if Jesus was truly gone? Because he wasn't gone, and they had him. Do you? Do you have him? Because when you have him, and he has you, you will lose your tomb as well. Let's stand together and we're going to...